So I was telling someone this morning that uh, today is what I would call the, the Super Bowl of Christianity. Um, after 52 weeks, 52 sermons in the book of Mark, we're finally at the cross. Um, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. Mark chapter 15, 21 through 32. And the title of this sermon is the cross, the curtain, and the confession. And it'll be a, a two-part sermon this week and next week. Mark 15, 21 through 32. Well, my childhood was one of urgency. Uh, my dad was always sort of a, a type A type guy who was in a hurry to get somewhere. Ross can, can attest to this. Uh, my mom would actually often jokingly say, um, we've got to hurry up and go somewhere so that we can get back. Sometimes I wondered what the point was of hurrying places if we actually didn't slow down to enjoy the place that we went. Well, in the introduction to the book of Mark, we noted that one of the characteristics of this book was its urgency. And immediately this, and immediately that, over and over and over again. Uh, the front of this book seemed like it was in a hurry to get us somewhere. We also noted that that urgency dramatically shifts in the last week of Jesus' life. The whole narrative slows down, making sure that we don't just hurry past the place that Mark has been driving us to since chapter 1, verse 1. Well, we're finally here. For the next couple of weeks, we've arrived at the most important moments in Mark's gospel and in the history of the world. So slow down. Don't miss it this morning. And even before we read, I want to just kind of lodge a question or a thought in your mind. These things that, that we're going to read about here in the text, these things were being done to the perfect, precious Son of God. The same Son that, that we read all about earlier in Colossians. God's only begotten Son. These things are being done to Him. And so I want to ask this question to us. Why does God not absolutely incinerate each and every one of these people in our text? They're beating, spitting on, mocking, torturing, and then killing the Son. Why doesn't God rain fire from heaven and torch them on the spot? They deserve it. Ponder that question as we dive into the text. So this is the word of the Lord, Mark 15, 21 through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. 
to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. For context's sake, let's remember where we are. Here's kind of a a rough outline of the last week of Jesus' life. On Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to great fanfare. Palm branches waving. Crowds of admirers chanting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. That's on Sunday. Monday and Tuesday, Jesus cleanses the temple, teaches, and moves out to to Mount Olivet to teach again on the true temple, which is him. So that's Monday and Tuesday. Thursday, after sunset, the disciples prepare the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper is instituted. Judas leaves into the night to betray Jesus. That night, they head to the garden where Jesus prays and they fall asleep. Judas and about a thousand soldiers enter the garden to arrest Jesus. Late that night, the Jews hold an unlawful trial and convict Jesus of blasphemy. But as we learned, they have no bite to their bark. They can't kill Jesus. But Rome can. Other Gospels kind of fill this part of the the timeline in more. They, They tell us that Jesus was before Herod. But Mark zeroes in on Jesus before Pilate. So, early Friday morning, they hurry Jesus off to Pontius Pilate at the governor's headquarters, where passive Pilate tries to kind of punt and leave Jesus' fate to the crowds. Barabbas is released, and Jesus is condemned to death by crucifixion. By 9 a.m. on that Friday morning, Jesus will be nailed to a cross. Take that in. That that whole timeline is really astonishing. So here in our text today, we're somewhere before 9 a.m., on Friday morning. First off, remember that that prior to this, we learned in verse 15 that Jesus had been scourged. I didn't focus in on this too much last week, but do you understand what scourging is? It's horrific. William Lane, who's a commentator on the book of Mark, he notes that in scourging, he says, the delinquent was stripped bound to a post or pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground, 
and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung bleeding in shreds. The instrument that indicated by the, that's in, indicated by the Markan text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. So, before verse 21, Jesus has been blindfolded, punched, spit on, and scourged. Now, condemned to crucifixion, he's made to carry the wooden crossbar, which could weigh up to a hundred pounds, down the road, out of town, and to his death. Due to utter exhaustion and probably blood loss at this point, it seems that Jesus physically can't carry the beam anymore. So what do they do? Look at our text, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Can you imagine that? Put yourself in Simon's shoes here. You're a passerby, the text tells us. You just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And a Roman guard grabs you. This word compelled isn't a kind word, by the way. It isn't like, hey, brother, uh, would, would you mind helping us out here? He, he could really use some help getting the beam up the hill. Is there any way that you could give us a hand? No. They forcefully pressed him into service. But I want to suggest that Simon wasn't at all in the wrong place at the wrong time. This moment changed his life forever. God was sovereign even over this. We don't know much about Simon of Cyrene before this moment, but Acts chapter 13, verse 1, if this is the same guy, he appears to be a, church, a teacher in the church at Antioch. Further, Mark calls, calls him Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He assumes that his audience, those in Rome, actually know these people. He doesn't need to explain to them who they are. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know these people. It'd be like me saying, Aaron, the father of Spike and Wiley and Quimby. Like, you, you know which Aaron I'm talking about because you know the Swedberg family. Again, if this is the same guy, Alexander and Rufus, but we see Paul greeting him in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So this random moment may have led to this man's conversion and to the conversion of his entire family. Do you understand this? Nothing, nothing in your life is random. Not your current circumstance. Not who your neighbors are. Not who you sit next to at work. None of it. 
question is, what is God doing? How does he want to use this moment or this circumstance to use me, to mold and shape my life? I'm sure this moment for Simon was terrifying, and I doubt it was pleasant. But he was part of the story of redemption that would make salvation possible for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation for all times. Simon isn't the main character in the story by any means. But he's a supporting role. And his role mattered as a part of God's plan. You're no different. I I hate to break it to you this morning, but you're not the main character of the story. Neither am I. Even though social media makes us feel that way sometimes. In the grand story of redemption, you're not the hero. Jesus is. The rest of us are supporting actors and actresses. We have the privilege of serving Jesus. Maybe not exactly like Simon, but part of the story nonetheless. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34? says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Simon literally had to take up a cross beam in this moment. But the call to you and I as Jesus' disciples is no less real. He calls us to follow him sacrificially with our lives. To live, not for ourselves, but for others. All of us should should read verse 21 and think, praise God for Simon of Cyrene. I want to live my life like that. Serving Jesus. Taking up my cross. Playing a supporting role to Jesus' story. What an example. Let's keep going. Verses 22 and 23. It says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. While we don't know the precise location of Golgotha or Calvary, as it's also called, we do know that at the time it would have been just outside of town, and on a public road, so that everyone could see what happens to enemies of Rome as kind of a public deterrent. And what we see here is seemingly a gracious act. Proverbs 31.6 says this. It says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Wine mixed with myrrh was a narcotic. It was commonly given to prisoners to kind of dull the pain. But Jesus didn't take it. He would experience the the full amount of torment without his senses being dulled. And this also fulfilled Psalm 69, verse 21. It says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Then 
surprisingly, we read in verses 24 and 25 in our text, it says, And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Isn't that amazing how concise that is? There's no description of crucifixion or of blood and gore or of the pain or of anything. And they crucified him. It was 9 a.m. when they crucified him. I'm not sure that you could be more to the point than that. And I think this is intentional. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to describe exactly what happened and the physical nature of the cross. In fact, if you're interested, you can look up the March 21st, 1986 issue of the Journal of American Medical Association. It's amazing. It explains crucifixion in detail from a medical standpoint. It's gruesome. But I believe Mark wants us to understand something else here. First, I believe we're meant to focus on the shame and not the pain. Make no mistake about it. Jesus' crucifixion was painful. But thousands and thousands of Jews were crucified during this period. And physical pain isn't or wasn't what makes Jesus' death unique. Mark isn't focused on physical pain here. Look again at verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. I'm going to read the preceding verses to give us more of a full picture. Psalm 22, verses six, starting in verse 16 through 18. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. In verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This psalm was written over a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. In fact, think about this. Crucifixion didn't even exist yet. Hadn't even been invented when this psalm was written. God is in complete control of this moment. And I want us to notice something. I said earlier that Mark's focus wasn't as much about the pain as about the shame. What is it that they're casting lots for here in our text? Jesus' garments. He's most likely naked on the cross, fully shamed, humiliated for us. Remember what happened in the garden all the way back in Genesis 3? I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but I want to read it again. Genesis chapter 3 Verses 6 and 7. So this is after Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave some to, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You remember, but we noted that nakedness is a biblical symbol for shame and for judgment. Shame and judgment. Both of those things were brought into the world via Adam and Eve's sin. And here we have Jesus, stripped of his garments, dying on the cross. John Calvin states this well. He says, The evangelists portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes, that we may know the wealth gained for us by this nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his son to be stripped, that we should appear freely with the angels, in the garments of his righteousness and fullness of all good things. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus, on the cross, is bearing our sin and our shame. He's having our iniquities placed on him, as we read earlier. Now, I'm going to read this again, Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. This is talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquitted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, this text in Isaiah was written by Isaiah 700 years before the crucifixion. But he got it. Peter later understood this too. 1 Peter 1.24, speaking of Jesus, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus, on the cross, would bear our sin and our shame. And this answers the question we posed at the beginning, too. Why in the world did God not absolutely crush every single soldier, priest, scribe, and mocker in this story? Because he crushed Jesus. We're back in Isaiah 53 again. Verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Jesus would bear our sin and our shame and the penalty for our open rebellion against God. And in return, we would get his righteousness. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. It's Paul speaking. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And here we go, verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do we understand that? It's mind-blowing. We sin. We deserve shame and judgment. But Jesus takes it all. And in return, we get clothed in his righteousness. No more shame. No more judgment. If you're a Christian, if you've repented and believed, are you living like that? Are you holding on to shame and guilt to overpass sins? Or are you resting in the righteousness of Christ that covers you this morning? This is why Christians can have true assurance and true peace. Not because we're righteous, but because Jesus was. Do you see that? If you're a Christian, that's your root identity. Child of God, declared righteous, clothed, clean, justified, or made right with God. Sit in that good news this morning. Praise God for that good news this morning. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to become one right now. This is the only way that your sin and your shame and the just judgment that you deserve can be dealt with. Very clearly, either you'll pay for your sin or Jesus will. There's no third option. This is what makes Jesus' death unique. Not the pain, painful as it was, but his ability to absorb God's wrath and to atone for every sin that we've ever committed or will commit. Don't rush past this. We're finally there. Just for the next couple of seconds, I want us to pause and take that in. Jesus died on the cross to absorb sin and God's wrath for you, taking away all sin, all shame, and all judgment. Verse 26. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. We learn in John 18, verses 20 through 22, that many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Do you see that? First, it's written in multiple languages. So as many people as possible could read it. Then, Pilate lets the statement stand. His royal title, the King of the Jews, is affixed to the cross. Verse 27. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. We learn in verse 32 that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Can you imagine that? These guys who are also going through a horrific amount of ridicule and pain themselves. In the midst of that, are hurling insults at Jesus. This should be no surprise to us by now. But even this is fulfilled or fulfilling scripture. We're back in Isaiah 53 again. Surprise, surprise. Verse 12 says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was being crucified with transgressors on his right and his left. Do you remember two disciples by the names of James and John? Do you remember what it was that they were asking? Mark 10, verses 35 through 38. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, they didn't realize uh, that this is how Jesus would be glorified. Through death on a cross. This isn't exactly the type of glory that James and John had in mind there. Interestingly enough, Luke, the evangelist, fills us in on the story a little more here. At some point, these two robbers are reviling Christ, and at some point, one of these two robbers stops reviling him and comes to faith in the last moment of his life. Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, says, One of the criminals who were hanged, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you haven't seen it already, and even if you have, uh, do yourself a favor and go YouTube this afternoon. Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross, said I could come. Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross, said I could come. It's fantastic. It'll make you grateful for the gospel. This, this moment in the text, it's such a powerful story of justification by faith alone. Do you see that? Just let's ask the question. Did this criminal do anything to earn his way to heaven? No. Literally, the only thing he had was faith in Christ. And it was good enough. He wasn't baptized. He didn't read his Bible enough. He couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer. None of it. And yet, Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you see the clear portrait of the gospel here? Both of these robbers were guilty of sin. But one of them, even at the last minute, trusted in Jesus, who then paid the penalty for that sin. His sin was placed on Jesus. And in moments, he was in heaven. Again, every single one of us has a decision to make. Which robber will we be? Either you will pay for your sin, like the one robber, or Jesus will pay for your sin, like the other. Those are the two options. You can either be hardened or healed. Look with me again at verses 29 through 32. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I can't say it more concisely than this. Sinclair Ferguson says, They despised him as a prophet. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. They mocked him as a priest. He saved others. He can't save himself. They humiliated him as a king. If he is the king, let him prove it by coming down from the cross. This is an all-out assault on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see the irony in it. 
Do you see their demands? Save yourself and come down from the cross. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Do you see the irony in that? Jesus saves others precisely by not saving himself. By not coming down from the cross. No, he would save others by staying on. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We've already seen one of the mocking criminals converted. But it doesn't stop there. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Check this out. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They were saved because Jesus didn't come down from the cross. Aren't you grateful for God's grace and his patience? Again, if God were were merely a a vengeful, hot-tempered God, every single one of these people would have been toast. But he's patient. He's gracious with them. And with us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't hurry past this. This is where Mark has been driving us for months. Jesus, as the second and better Adam, as prophet, priest, and king, has borne our sin and shame on the cross. He's provided a way for us to be forgiven redeemed and reconciled to God. This moment was the most important moment in history. Let's praise God for this truth. Let's pray.